that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Martha has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Just a little bit of uh, context. Um, The book of Luke, like the book of Mark, is written in a very orderly and careful way. And if you are lucky enough to be starting uh, studying Mark uh, this year, then you're going to see that in the Gospel of Mark. You're going to see it probably straight away. That the Gospel of Mark is divided into two halves. And there's a turning point that kind of flips one half into another. I don't want to steal the thunder of the Mark Bible studies here, but you'll see it. It is Peter's recognition statement in Mark uh, 9 that Jesus is the Christ. And you'll see that this changes the focus of the book from who is Jesus to what he has come to do. Now, Luke has a very similar order, very similar kind of turning point. But there's one big difference in Luke's gospel. You'll notice that Luke is a much longer gospel than Mark, and that's because he has this extra section that runs from chapter 9 and Peter's recognition of Christ all the way through to chapter 19, where Jesus enters Jerusalem. And this distinct section in which Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem is sometimes called the travel narrative. And this travel narrative is marked by occasions when Jesus says, we're going up to Jerusalem so I can die. It's a very distinct part of Luke's story. Now, what is the focus of this travel narrative in which we find this little story of Mary and Martha? Well, let me show you. Let's do some uh, work. See if you can spot the two themes going on in these examples. First theme, have a look back at 9.23. 9.23, then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now have a look at 9.62. 9.62, Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And now just forward a little bit to 14.25. 14.25, still on the way to Jerusalem. And we read that large crowds were travelling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Well, I wonder if you could spot the, the theme in those examples. I want to suggest that the theme is simply what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a disciple. And Jesus shows in the travel narrative that to be a disciple, to be a follower, is to take up your cross. That is, to be a disciple is to be someone who follows Jesus with absolute commitment. You can't be a half-hearted disciple. You can't be a part-time disciple. You can't be a disciple of Jesus and say, enough is enough. To be a disciple is to be completely committed. But there's another theme going on. Have a look now at three more examples and see if you can spot the second theme. Turn back a few pages to 10 verse 2. 10 verse 2. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now flip forward to 1318. 1318. Don't worry, we're not doing much more of this Bible flipping. We're going to land back in chapter 10 in a moment. But 1318, Jesus asks, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in the garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds of the air perched in its black branches. And then 1320, last reference, again he asks, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked through the dough. Well, I wonder if you could spot the second theme in those references. I want to suggest that the second theme in this part of Luke's gospel is the growing kingdom of God and our involvement in it. And so put those two themes together. Jesus is calling people to follow him with absolute commitment. And as he does, he's calling them to be involved in the growth of the kingdom. So a disciple, according to Luke's gospel, according to Jesus, is somebody who follows Jesus with absolute single-minded commitment in order to work with him to grow the kingdom of God. Well, there's the context of this little story. More of a passing cameo, really, isn't it, between these two sisters and Jesus. So let's come back now to Luke 10.38. And let's think about these two sisters and the different ways of thinking that they represent. 10.38 again. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. The word translated in verse 38, opened her home, is a word that Luke uses a number of times to talk about receiving or welcoming Jesus, which is a kind of catchword for being a disciple. For example, it's the word that Luke uses of Zacchaeus. Remember the little tax collector who climbs up the tree and then at the end of the story he welcomes Jesus gladly. It's a way Luke says he's become a Christian. He's become a disciple. And the same root is used here. Uh, Sorry, in 948, where Jesus actually defines discipleship as welcoming him, receiving him, opening your home to him as a little child would. So what do we learn about Martha? She is a disciple. She has a relationship with Jesus. But Martha has a problem. There is something slightly wrong, something slightly off balance with her discipleship. Look at verse 40. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Now, I don't know about you, but I find myself just feeling a certain amount of sympathy for Martha, don't you? I mean, I just worked this out early this afternoon, and I I counted five reasons why Martha is doing the right thing. Number one, she is the hostess, and she's got preparations to deal with. Number two, this is a culture where hospitality done well is very important. Number three, the guest coming to dinner is Jesus. Number four, discipleship is about serving other people, and Martha is doing what disciples are meant to do. And number five, someone needs to do it. 
If the people there are going to have a meal, if the food is going to get made and put on the table, if the building is going to get cleaned, if people are going to be made to feel welcome, someone's got to do it. And so five reasons Martha had to be busy. And so don't you feel that there is something slightly unfair about this situation when her sister, when, when her sister is just sitting listening to Jesus? I mean, if you've got siblings, you may have had this experience just once or twice. You know, the, the sort of unfairness that, that, you know, you've tied your room, but they're just lounging around in the Xbox, in front of the Xbox or whatever. And you're going to get it with your flatmates, aren't you? When it's you who are doing the washing up again, it's you who care about the fridge not being sort of full of green mould. It's you who are actually putting stuff away in the kitchen into your lockers. Whereas everybody else just dumps it in the sink and goes and plays frisbee or goes to the nightclub or whatever, expecting dishwasher fairy, you, Christian man or woman, to sort it out. And so verse 40, she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work? Tell her to help me. You see, if you look at things from Martha's side, it would appear, wouldn't it, that there is something slightly off about Mary's discipleship. After all, Martha has done something useful. She's serving other people. Isn't this what disciples are meant to do? Isn't there something slightly sort of super spiritual about Mary? Shirking her practical responsibilities. You know, it's like you saying to your flatmate, no, I'm going to leave the washing up because I'm going to the Bible study tonight. And so we can find ourselves wondering, which is right? But look what Jesus says to him in verse 41. You are worried and upset about many things. And those words of Jesus are pointing to the whole thing. He expands on this in 12.22 when he spells out the kind of worries and anxieties that people normally worry about. Don't turn to it now. But it's the passage where he says, don't worry about what you will eat or drink or wear, but focus on the kingdom of God and those other things will fall into place. It's also the word Jesus uses in Matthew 13 in the context of the parable of the sower for the worries of this age that actually ultimately cause you to fall away. It's got that sense of the divided focus. You know those fish that you sometimes see on David Attenborough programs where their eyes can swivel so they can look down, they can look up at the same time? It's that kind of double-mindedness that is on view here. And Jesus wants a single-mindedness. Not that it's never right to worry about things or be concerned about the practical matters. But the worry that Jesus is identifying is the worry that actually distracts from the kingdom. And so although it's good to be serving, that's not good the way Martha is serving. She is serving in an anxious and distracted way. Her serving, her very ministry is actually pulling her away from the most important thing. And so what is that most important thing? Well, remember what the two sisters were doing. One was serving, one was listening to Jesus. In verse 42, Jesus says, only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. See, there is plenty to do, isn't there? 
And discipleship is certainly going to involve practical service. It's going to involve saying yes to all sorts of practical things. And if you stay at this church and become part of this church, I hope you will, you'll see that. You'll see other people doing it and you'll do it yourself. You'll roll up your sleeves. You'll serve other people. You'll get tired. You will pick up your cross if you're a disciple. But what Mary understands is that that service is driven by something else. It's not driven by anxiety. It is driven by listening to God and that will not be taken away. And that's why that context is so important. Because Jesus is calling people to join him in his kingdom work. And what that means is speaking the word building believers, planting, growing, serving churches. And the key to it all, the foundation of it all, is listening to his word. And the great thing is, that although I have kind of driven a dichotomy between Mary and Martha, so it sounds like either listening or working, actually it's both, isn't it? Because presumably when Martha had done all her chores, she would then sit and listen to Jesus, Presumably when Mary had finished listening to Jesus, she would help Martha with the chores. Presumably it's not either or, it's both and. But what matters is the direction of travel. What matters is the priority. And so, as Lydia said this lunchtime, you've got to be careful what you say yes to. If you keep saying yes to good things that will take you away from the word, you will end up like Martha. Serving resentfully, counting the clock, looking over the fence. But if you put the word first, you end up like Mary. Somebody who has the capacity to serve others because they are listening to Jesus. And that is why only one thing is needed. The essence of being a disciple. Someone who will be working with Jesus to grow his kingdom, is to be somebody who is taking in the word of God. And so we want to encourage you to, to guard that, to put that plank in place right at the start of this year. But why is that the case? And we're going to look at this more briefly and we'll come back to it in future weeks. Why is only one thing needed? It is because only one thing is central. It is because it is by God's word that God relates to us. This is how we come to know God. This is how we grow in our likeness to Jesus. The problem is there are so many other things competing. So have a look at the diagram, uh, which I put on the page, but I'm going to put it on the screen as well. You'll see on the diagram there are four options. There is tradition, reason, experience, and then the one in the middle. And I want to begin just by encouraging you to cast your eyes around the world in your imagination for a moment. Imagine you are able somehow to dive into all sorts of different churches and situations all over the world. What are people doing in those different churches? As people gather together in different settings and cultures and traditions, what are people doing? In the name of Christianity, what are the different activities happening? Well, of course, there are all sorts of different things going on. Some people are sitting and listening. Some people are involved in rituals and meetings and colour and all sorts of things, all under the name of Christianity. 
Why is that the case? Well, there are various historical reasons that are interesting. But I want to suggest that throughout church history, there have been just four major impulses in terms of how we come to know God. Let's go through them together. Firstly, experience. That is, some people believe that what really matters is how you feel. It is what is going on inside, in a kind of inner, subjective way, that puts you in touch with God. And so a lot of the practices you see in churches around the world are, I guess, creating that sort of experience. From taking bread and wine to bowing in a certain direction to having an attention paid to music and singing and those sorts of things. And so one way of relating to God is through experience, where we feel something, and that is our attachment to God. Other people, though, they say, well, no, tradition is how we come to know God. It is what has been handed down through the centuries. That is what matters. It's the knowledge that has been passed down right back from the apostles, the church practices, the special ceremonies, the right ways of doing things. And so you get a whole other flavour of church life in this world where actually it's the formality, it's the tradition, it's the authority of the person in charge wearing the special clothes, saying the special things in the special building. That is what matters. And other people come along and they say, well, no, neither of those things are all right, what we need is reason. Why would you base your understanding on God on either of those things? Actually, God is rational, and therefore we just have to use our minds, our brains, our intelligence, the evidence of our senses, and we can work out God. If we apply our reason to the created world, we look down the microscope, we look up to the telescope, we can work out what God is like. But there is a fourth option which is something that God himself has done. And as we saw this morning, and as we're going to see over these few weeks, that God himself has revealed himself. God has taken the initiative. He's done it without needing the authority of experience or tradition or reason, although he uses those things to help us understand it. But can you see how different God's revelation is to those other three options? Joe asked us to ask each other some questions, didn't he? And answering those simple questions involved the exercise of revelation. So, what meal would I like to eat? Was that one of the questions? I'm thinking about it right now. I can picture it on the plate. Hot, steaming, fresh, nutritious, delicious. But you're never going to know what I'm talking about, are you? You can guess all you like. It's not lasagna. It's not (laughs) pasta and pesto. It's not even uh, wood-fired pizza, although that is very, very close. It's not even fish and chips from Key's fish and chip shop, although that is also close as well. You're getting the kind of idea of the food I like. (laughs) Shall I tell you? If I tell you, it is a revelation. You can't work it out by experience, by sort of standing next to me and 
hoping that there'll be some kind of vibe coming from me that's going to communicate my favourite meal to you. Can't work it out from experience. You can't work it out from tradition, can you? Well, if you're very clever, you might have a look in my recycling bin, for example, and see all the different wrappers and things I've used. And you might, if you're very, very clever, but you'll never be sure. You can't work it out from reason. You might look at me and think, well, he looks like the kind of guy who would like this particular thing, but you're never going to be sure unless I tell you what it is. And that is the case with God. Okay, I'll tell you, just because it's so, yeah, on the end of this, it's steak and chips. That would be my, if I had to have last meal, it would be steak and chips. Apologies to the vegetarians among you. I did this before and I said, my favourite ice cream was lemon meringue pie ice cream. And there's a very kind couple in our church that now give me, on my birthday, a tub of Walling's lemon meringue ice cream every year without fail. It's, it's delightful. So I thought I'd try it with cars and see how that works. Aston Martin. See, see what happens on my birthday next time. But you get the idea. God is a person. We can't work him out by a feeling inside us. We can't work him out by applying our brains. We can't work him out by tracing back the tradition. Those things can help. Those things can be part of it. And there's another problem with God as well. You see, I did that thing with my favourite meal, and I am a person. You can see me. You can hear my words. God is invisible, and he is transcendent. And there's a third problem, which we are sinners. We'll come back to that next week. And so can you see that God must take the initiative with revelation? We have no other way to know God unless he reveals himself. And he has revealed himself in the spirit-inspired words of the Bible. And that's why the gospel, the revelation that we see in the Bible across the Old and New Testament, as we saw this morning, is the central thing. The thing we need and the thing we mustn't lose sight of. The thing we must have in the driving seat of the Christian life. We're going to put a sentence on the, on the bottom, write it down on our sheets, uh, which is going to summarise the whole of this term's talk series. And it's this. It's a Trinitarian statement of how we know God. The word of God bringing about faith in Christ by the spirit of God. It's not the only way you can summarise Christianity, but that's what we're going to work with this term. Christianity is the word of God bringing about faith in Christ by the spirit of God. And that's what we're going to spend unpacking in the rest of this series. We'll look at it like this uh, over the course of these seven or so weeks. Firstly, with the introduction, I'm done. Next time we'll come back to the need for revelation. We'll unpack that a little bit more about why it is that God has to speak to us and we can't work him out. And then we'll look at how the Bible has been kind of attacked over the years and the way it's thought about today. And then we'll think about the word and the spirit, more about what we saw this morning and how the spirit is involved in making, helping us to understand the word. And then we'll take a look at how the Bible came to be. How is the Bible that we hold in our hands now so reliable? How can we trust it to be true and without error? 
And then we're going to look at the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, how the whole Bible is related around Jesus Christ and what that means in practice. And then in the seventh and final week, what it means in practice to do the ministry of the word, to be involved in building Jesus' kingdom. And all of that is going to help us to be listeners like Mary, who's listening to the word will create in us a desire to serve like Martha, to pick up our cross and follow the king. Well, why don't I pray that that will be the case uh, for us this term. Father, we do thank you again for your great kindness to us in carefully, deliberately revealing yourself to us in the gospel and in the words of the Bible that we have in front of us. We pray that you'd forgive us for when we take these words for granted. And we pray that you'd help us this term to grasp afresh with real clarity how and why you've spoken to us and what that means for the Christian life. And we pray that I'll begin tonight as we gather in our Bible studies to study your word. We pray that we would meet Jesus in your word and we go home tonight thrilled and rejoicing at your kindness to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.